Hi there, everyone. Uh, my name is George Lawson. I teach international relations at the Australian National University, and I'm here with Sharon Nepstad from the University of New Mexico. And we're here to talk about a collective project that we've been involved with and the book that's resulted from that called On Revolutions that we've co-authored with Colin Beck, Milada Bukovansky, Erica Chenoweth, and Daniel Ritter. Uh, so we've got a few minutes to talk about that. And I'm going to start by asking Sharon, um, why did we write this book, Sharon? And what do you think are its, its big takeaways? Yeah, this book came about because all six of us authors have been thinking about and studying revolutions. And there are an abundance of revolutions happening in the world. All you have to do is turn on the news and hear about struggles happening all over. And yet all of us as academics had noted that the field of revolution studies had stagnated. It was very strong in the late 20th century when there was a lot of discussion about how revolutions emerge and why, but it seemed to stagnate as we moved into the 21st century, which seemed at odds with what we were observing in the world. So Daniel and, um, and George had some funds and we got together in London and we started talking about why is this the case that there's a discrepancy between the academics of study of revolution on the one hand and the reality in the world on the other hand. Yeah, I mean, I remember that fondly and that was exactly where we started from. Do you want to tell um, listeners a little bit more about, about how we try to, to close that gap between theories of revolutions and the practice that we were observing? So as we started talking about this discrepancy, one of the things we realized is the theory that had developed in the field of revolution studies had really kind of limited our way of thinking and kind of stuck our thinking in these dichotomies. So the book explores a variety of different dichotomies within revolutionary theory. The difference, for example, on the one hand, between social and political revolutions, between nonviolent and violent struggles, between domestic revolutions and international uh, conflicts, and a variety of other things, the dichotomy between success and failure. And we realized that this was limiting our way of thinking. So George, maybe you could talk about one of those dichotomies and how we tried to dismantle it to start to open up new conversations about revolutions. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the one that I guess I'm most familiar with and have spent the most time with is this dichotomy between international and domestic. And that really comes as a result of previously working uh, in history and sociology where revolutions are almost always considered to be primarily or exclusively domestic affairs. And then spending uh, a long time since then in international relations departments, where if revolutions are studied at all, they tend to be seen as international phenomena. And this is something that uh, Daniel Ritter, one of our co-authors, has also spent a lot of time on. And it struck me that there's something very obvious to say here, which is revolutions always have an international dimension. They're always bound up with regional affairs, with relationships between states, with elite uh, relationships that cross borders, with ideas and tactics that cross borders. Now, that doesn't mean they're always international in the same way, but it does strike me that they're always international in some respect. And maybe that's increasingly the case in the contemporary world as we get more used to, at least pre-COVID, a lot of mobilities around people, uh, ideas, tactics, and so on. So one thing we try and do uh, in that chapter is explore the ways in which revolutionary causes, a revolutionary event, and then revolutionary outcomes always have that international dimension, even if it differs in terms of how international particular uh, revolutions are. Um, do you want to, I think we've probably got time, Sharon, to talk about one more uh, of those dichotomies. Perhaps you want to you explore another one? Yeah, I'll talk about the violence-nonviolence dichotomy. 
a number of us had been writing about nonviolence and talking about nonviolent or unarmed revolutions. And yet a lot of people who read our work started to say, can you really call these nonviolent? Because in many of these cases, there's a mix of tactics. Sure, there are boycotts and general strikes and mass mobilizations and protests, but in some instances, there's also property destruction or rioting. And that led us to begin thinking about if we dismantle this dichotomy, it opens up all sorts of new questions. For example, in the Egyptian uprising of 2011, something that was characterized as a nonviolent uprising, we also see that in some instances there were uh, considerable attacks on police buildings and police cars. And some authors, uh, for example, Neil Ketchley pointed out that that actually helped the nonviolent struggle because the police were really focused on defending their buildings. It meant that protesters in the square were not having to be concerned about a police crackdown at that moment. So then it opens up all these new questions about how might things that some people consider to be violent or unarmed acts of violence, like attacking a police car or a police building, how might that actually help a violent struggle? So it started to open up a lot of new questions. But we don't have much time left here. So George, why don't you say a little bit about where this stands today? What are the implications of this book for the world that we live in right now? That's a pretty big question for 30 seconds. But I think the way that you were talking there is exactly the segue, right? Because I think something interesting is happening with violence and nonviolence. If you look at a contemporary struggles around the world, whether it's in Rojava or Myanmar or Sri Lanka or elsewhere, I think you're getting a blending or a blurring of those particular categories. I think that tells us something really crucial, which is that studying revolutions requires paying attention to what's actually happening with revolutionaries on the ground. And if they're becoming more violent or more armed, then our theories need to reflect that. One of the things we were trying to do in the book is trying to align those trajectories, both the practice of revolutions and their theories.